Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Tame of the Shrew podcast. This week, we're going to be recapping our most recent Journal Club discussion, where we talked about a number of papers that dealt with the use of antibiotics in the emergency department, specifically looking at the utility or disutility of vancomycin for patients likely to be discharged from the emergency department, the incidence of acute kidney injury for patients receiving vancomycin and zosin, and finally looking at whether or not adding cephalexin to Bactrim has any benefit for patients with soft tissue infection without abscess. So today we're talking about antibiotics. Uh, we covered three different articles in our journal club last night. My name is Joshua Garger. I'm Sean Hardy. And I'm Kelly Gerald. So we'll start out with the first article that I covered, which is acute kidney injury in patients treated with vancomycin and piperacillin tazobactam, a retrospective cohort analysis. This paper was written by Rudder et al. out of the University of Kentucky. Overall, this was a retrospective cohort analysis of adult patients with renal disease receiving vancomycin, piperacillin tazobactam, or a combination of the two from September 1st, 2010 through August 31st, 2014. The primary outcomes of this paper were AKI incidents, um, as defined by the rifle criteria, which is risk, injury, failure, loss, and end stage. The authors of this article collected data over that time period. Overall, they had 11,650 patients that were analyzed. Of those 11,650 patients, 1,647 of them developed acute kidney injury. What they showed is that Patients who received the combination of vancomycin and piperacillin tazobactam had a 21% incidence of acute kidney injury compared to the groups that received either alone. The vancomycin alone group had an AKI incidence of 8.3%, and the piperacillin tazobactam group had an AKI incidence of 7.8%. This was statistically significant for both groups compared to the combination therapy. They calculated a Charleston score for each group to make sure that the groups had generally similar baseline comorbidities. Um, They tried to stratify for patients who received other nephrotoxic agents. They tried to stratify based on severity of illness, um, which they used hypotension and dehydration as markers of. We thought all of these uh, efforts were valid. Uh, We discussed how that the three patient populations may not in fact, be equal, um, given the fact that patients who are receiving combination therapy are likely sicker at time of illness than the groups that receive either vancomycin or zosin individually. They do discuss how that Apache scores or SOFA scores may have been a more appropriate stratification tool, um, but they did not use those scores simply for the fact that the patients in the study were not all ICU level of care, and those scores are not directly applicable to all of the patients in this study. We discussed how they defined AKI based on the rifle criteria. They defined the different levels of acute kidney injury as risk, which included GFR rises of 25 to 50%, injury level, which was 50 to 75% decrease in GFR, and failure was defined as greater than 75% decrease in GFR. Anyone who had any of those rifle characteristics were determined to have an AKI. They did stratify later based on the severity um, and found that amongst the groups, the combination therapy was higher risk of AKI as compared to the other two groups, no matter what their their AKI range was. 
When they stratified based on patients who had hypotension or received nephrotoxins, the combination therapy was still a higher percentage of AKI compared to either individual antibiotics. Overall, we thought this was a good paper. Some criticisms of the paper were, like I mentioned, that the groups receiving the different therapies are not necessarily the same level of illness at the time of treatment. Additionally, we discussed the fact that they did not compare the combination therapy group to a similar combination therapy group, such as people receiving vancomycin and cefepime. We thought that was a major drawback of this paper. We thought that overall it was a good paper. It was a paper that should lead us to think and choose our antibiotics wisely, but not necessarily to change our practice patterns based on this data alone. Yeah, I think that that, uh, that, that point you made at the end there in terms of a comparative group of vanc and cefepime is probably most interesting. It seems like you could probably do a retrospective review of ICU patients admitted for uh, pneumonia, uh, compare those receiving vanc and uh, uh, Piptazo and those receiving vanc cefepime and see what the rates of kidney injury are and sort of help further uh, uh, sort of elucidate this possible relationship. I think that's true, and I think if you use that specific patient population, patients that are ICU level of care, it would also alleviate one of our other criticisms of using the Charleston score. Um, You could, in in that situation, use an Apache score, which would be more appropriate uh, to stratify the illness level of the patients individually. All right, so this is Sean Hardy. Uh, The paper I was covering is titled Vancomycin Use in Patients Discharged from the Emergency Department, a Retrospective Observational Cohort Study. This was Mueller et al. out of Washington University, published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine. What this paper was, uh, was a single center retrospective observational cohort study, although um, at Journal Club last night we kind of discussed that it was more of a chart review uh, than it was a true cohort study. Um, That essentially over an 18-month period uh, enrolled adult patients who were seen in the emergency department administered a dose of vancomycin, and subsequently discharged from the emergency department. Uh, Their main outcomes were to characterize patients receiving uh, vanc uh, prior to discharge home from the ED and what characteristics they had, and to identify patients that did not meet true indications for getting vancomycin for MRSA infections based on the 2011 Infectious Disease Society of America guidelines. Um, so like I said, it was a single center study, um, enrolled patients over an 18 month period. They had a predefined list of variables, uh, which included things like patient demographics, chief complaint, ultimate diagnosis, the dosing of vancomycin, other, other antibiotics given, other antibiotics prescribed, and the appropriateness of vanc use. Um, and put that in a standard format, pulled it out of the EMR by the PI, who then had all of that data cross-checked prior to analysis. Uh, They also took a look at um, a 12-month period of follow-up to see if they went back to the ED or followed up with their PCP for uh, the same symptoms. They were able to enroll uh, 526 patients over that 18-month period who got VANC and then were subsequently discharged home. These were generally healthy patients, um, generally middle-aged, all for the most part from home, the majority of which were tachycardic, but otherwise um, 
fairly healthy patient population. They found that 75% of patients had a MRSA risk factor, uh, as defined by a prior paper from the New England Journal of Medicine looking at MRSA in the emergency department, uh, which included things like abscess, reported insect bite. The diagnosis that the patients had was 70% skin and soft tissue infections. Uh, And then there was a broad range of other diagnoses, including fever, UTI, laceration, headache, meningitis, uh, quite a few different things. 73% of patients were underdosed uh, in terms of the vancomycin they got, and 68% of patients received one dose prior to uh, discharge. 73% of patients that were seen in the ED and given vanc were not even given antibiotics to go home with. Um, And they found that when they applied the IDSA guidelines, only 9% of these patients met criteria for vancomycin. Their guidelines from the IDSA were complicated skin and soft tissue infections. Uh, The caveat here is they assumed nobody had this uh, because they they assumed that anyone that got discharged obviously did not have a complicated uh, skin and soft tissue infection. Bacteremia, infective endocarditis, pneumonia, osteo, septic arthritis, meningitis, and intracranial abscess. So uh, looking at those 526 patients, only 9% met a criteria to get VANC. Their takeaway was vancomycin dosed and used like this is likely leading to antibiotic uh, resistance. It's unlikely to have any clinical effect on patient care um, and that it was truly never indicated by IDSA guidelines. Our thoughts on the paper you know, in my two years and change of residency here, it's not a practice pattern that I've seen. Uh, so we kind of certainly agree with not giving vancomycin unless we expect the patient to be admitted to the hospital uh, for a serious um, IDSA indication uh, or for sepsis. We thought it was a great review of kind of the pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics of vancomycin and the time-dependent killing it has uh, and the time it takes to get to steady state. So one of our takeaways was if we were to get a um, surgical consult uh, for a large area of cellulitis uh, or something like this, and we were going to put the patient in like an observation protocol where we expect them to go home within the next 24 hours and that our consultant would want the patient to be on vancomycin to maybe kind of bring forward this point that we're not going to actually achieve steady state and it's probably unlikely to help the patient and and would likely lead to resistance. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think the really one of the tough things with with um, with some of this with some cellulitis patients is uh, the ones that we admit to the hospital that we think are very that are moderately ill. We start them on vancomycin. Some of them turn around more quickly than we expect, and so some of those might go home. But I think that your point of as a general practice pattern for those patients who are going to admit to an observation status or those patients that we're admitting and we expect that there's a fair likelihood that they'll go home within a 24 or even 48-hour period of time, Uh, those patients we should probably avoid vancomycin on. Um, Obviously, the patients that are septic uh, or have significant systemic illness, and we should not uh, shy away from uh, from broad-spectrum antibiotics up front with those individuals. But otherwise, we should really think hard about whether or not this and our antibiotic selection is going to benefit the patient um, and whether or not it benefits society as a whole. Yep, couldn't agree more.
So this is Kelly Gerald. I reviewed um, Moran et al. from JAMA in 2017. The effect of cephalexin plus trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole versus cephalexin alone on clinical cure of uncompl uncomplicated cellulitis, a randomized control trial. So this was a multi-center, double-blind um, RCT superiority trial that was done in five U.S. emergency departments kind of across the country. Um, they recruited patients from April 2009 through June 2012 with the final follow-up occurring in August of 2012. They took all comers with patients um, older than 12 with uncomplicated cellulitis, which they defined as patients um, with clinical evidence of a skin and soft tissue infection, and then screened these patients with um, bedside ultrasound completed by the emergency department providers um, in order to um, separate out patients who had abscesses um, diagnosed on ultrasound, which were ultimately not included in the study. Um, they prescribed these patients, or they randomized these patients into two groups, one receiving um, seven days of Keflex um, plus Bactrim, um, and one group receiving Keflex plus placebo. And then they had follow-ups uh, during therapy, just after completion of therapy, two weeks, 14 to 21 days, so two to three weeks after the fact, which was their test of cure visit, and then they had one later follow-up that occurred a couple weeks um, after their test of cure. They found, um, and they defined 10% as their threshold at which they could um, consider um, the combination therapy as to be superior to um, Keflex alone. So they found um, in the groups um, they completed a couple different analyses in their per-protocol group. There was uh, no significant difference in the clinical failure rate um, in combination therapy compared to Keflex alone. Um, in their, they also found no statistically significant difference in either of their uh, intention-to-treat analyses, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, exactly what went into each of these intention-to-treat analyses, but um, ultimately they found no. Uh, statistically significant difference in rates of clinical failure um, between the two groups. Um, however, in their modified attention to treat group one, which was any patient who took at least one dose of antibiotic and had some form of follow-up either in person or on the phone was included in that group, their confidence interval did cross this predefined threshold of 10%. So they were unable to conclude definitively that Bactrim and Keflex was not superior to Keflex alone, given that their confidence interval did cross that 10% threshold. Um, there was no difference in any of the secondary outcomes that they looked at. Um, and there were no significant differences in adverse, uh, adverse events between the two groups. Um, so walking through the study, we kind of have quite a bit of provider variability, I think, in what we do. The IDSA guidelines recommend Keflex monotherapy for patients with cellulitis only and whom you're not concerned for an abscess, who have no evidence of systemic infection, no penetrating trauma, um, no evidence of MRSA infection elsewhere or um, any history of IV drug use. And um, they used kind of the IDSA guideline criteria to screen out patients who had any of these. So IV drug users were not included. Patients with abscesses were not included. Patients with penetrating trauma or foreign bodies in the wound, et cetera, were not included in their study. Uh, we found amongst kind of our group of people, there are many people who even for uncomplicated cellulitis are routinely prescribing Bactrim and Keflex. And um, it, the way the paper is written is this, that's kind of who 
um, that's kind of the clinical question that they're speaking into with their study is, do you really need to do combination therapy? Is that truly superior to following the IDSA guidelines, which is Keflex alone? Um, we felt like the use of ultrasound was a uh, strength of their study because coming into it without that question, most, you know, 15% of patients with cellulitis go on to progress to an abscess. And there's this question without the ultrasound, are these patients, were these cellulitis just misdiagnosed as an abscess um, to start with? And they did kind of their, their fair shake of preventing patients who really just had an early abscess that wasn't clinically evident at the time. In terms of other methods, patient were, patients were provided with uh, blister packs of either the Bactrim and Keflex or the um, Keflex plus placebo. They used a placebo um, that they felt like was pretty well equivalent to the Bactrim that had been uh, used in a prior study. They, let's see, they used outcomes of uh, diagnostic characteristics of the wound itself, so size, area of erythema, and duration, fever, swelling, tenderness, and use these characteristics kind of periodically throughout the follow-up to determine um, whether there had been a clinical cure or a clinical failure. Um, they, their uh, one caveat that they mentioned in their discussion um, was that you know these are there are no kind of hard and fast characteristics by which to define clinical failure of a you know of an antibiotic to treat a skin and soft tissue infection. But we felt like in our discussion that the criteria that they used were reasonable: decrease in size, decrease in erythema, um, decrease in tenderness, and that the time intervals at which they um, they deemed either a clinical cure or clinical failure were fairly reasonable. Um, it does pretty accurately reflect what we might consider and kind of anecdotally use in our own practice. For, um, for their analysis, so um, one thing that we kind of talked about most um, in our discussion of this was kind of their different analyses. So the, the per protocol group, so they had 248 patients in each group, um, four were excluded prior to when they started treatment. Only 87.9% of the combo therapy group and 77.8% um, of the group receiving Keflex alone qualified for the PER protocol. So they had pretty low adherence to these medication regimens, which is probably an accurate reflection of what really happens. So the PER protocol analysis, although there's no um, clinically, or there was no statistically significant difference between the group and probably most accurately reflects what we want to do for our patients. So the maximum the effect of the therapy delivered in the means through which it was supposed to be delivered showed no clinically significant difference, whereas the intention to treat, so patients who initiated treatment, had some sort of follow-up, but did not complete what they considered, which was 75% of the you had to take 75% of the medication um, and come back for the clinical test of cure to be included in the PER protocol. So the intention to treat analysis, which um, probably more accurately reflects what really happens in real life, um, had, once again, no statistically significant difference, but did cross that confidence interval and did skew towards um, the did skew a little bit towards and cross that confidence interval of superiority for Bactrim and Keflex versus Keflex alone. But once again, it was not statistically significant. Um, they also did um, kind of a best case, worst case scenario analysis, um, which in which they uh, grouped all patients who were lost to follow up in either best case, which would be that Bactrim and Keflex was better, or in the worst case analysis, they assigned all of those patients into um, Kind of assuming that those who took Keflex, or assuming all of those had uh, treatment failure with the Keflex only, and basically that showed 
that when you put everybody in the best case, Bactrim and Keflex looked better, and when you put everybody in the worst case, Keflex alone looked better, which we interpreted as there were a lot of people in that group, um, and we didn't make a whole lot more of that. In terms of our discussion, um, we felt like this was a relatively well done study. Um, we felt like the use of ultrasound particularly, um, although is not completely pervasive in our own clinical practice, um, is something that is coming more um, and more to the forefront and felt like it was uh, useful to exclude patients who just had an early abscess um, that wasn't evident. Um, we felt like there is this issue of non-adherence to the prescribed treatment, which was interesting that patients in the Keflex alone group had higher rates of non-adherence compared to the combination group. Um, in theory, you would expect that patients taking placebo would be less likely to stop based on adverse effects, which are kind of the most common reasons people stop taking their medications. Um, and so there's this possibility of blinding issues. Did these patients realize that they were taking placebo and so um, self-discontinued their therapy? Um, so that was one kind of question we had, which the authors brought up in their discussion is, why was this the case? The other kind of interesting point that we um, brought out was that, you know, the authors in their discussion referenced this kind of old data that shows that 66% of skin and soft tissue infections are either misdiagnosed, they go on to get better kind of no matter what you do. And so does that skew these findings um, towards your null hypothesis and that these patients are going to get better no matter what we what you do? And it's hard to know because that's based on old data in kind of an era when uh, we didn't have the same kind of treatments that we do right now. Our takeaway from this is that um, those of us in our group who were routinely prescribing combination therapy with Bactrim and Keflex for what was presumed to be an isolated cellulitis would feel more comfortable adhering to the IDSA guidelines with Keflex only in absence of demonstrated superiority of the combination by this paper. Um, those of us um, who kind of, and we kind of generally agreed that in patients who we are concerned with risk factors, even if they're not evident based on the IDSA guidelines, would probably, in light of this paper, still continue to prescribe dual therapy, even in absence of a demonstrated clear superiority um, in this trial. Thanks, everybody, for joining us again for this week's episode of Taming the Shrew Podcast. We'll be back again in just a couple weeks. Take care.